whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to the second season of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? To begin with, thank you so much for inviting me to do this. I'm Hannah Ginsborg, and I teach at the University of California, Berkeley. And I have done a lot of work on Kant, especially Kant's critique of judgment. But now I'm working on areas, I mean, I'm still thinking about Kant, but now I'm working more in areas in contemporary philosophy of mind, philosophy of language, and I'm especially interested in Wittgenstein and rule following. What was the path from Kant to Wittgenstein and rule following? I mean, are those things closely connected in your intellectual trajectory or was there a kind of swerve where you your interests changed? No, well, actually, there is a trajectory, which is I actually started out being interested in rule following. I read the, when I was an undergraduate, the original transcript of the lecture of Kripke of Wittgenstein on rules and private language that was in my second year as an undergraduate in 1977 I think this was 78 and I thought this was just amazing and this is what I wanted to think about and then I went through sort of the various things happened and then I decided probably it made sense to write my dissertation on Kant but I had the rule following issues at the back of my mind all along. And then I started to read the critique of judgment. And I thought, ah, here's the solution to the rule following puzzle that Kripke raised about Wittgenstein. And so a lot of my work on the critique of judgment was actually carried out with thinking about rule following. And then maybe about 10, 12 years ago, I started to think that the time had come to draw on what I felt like I'd learned from the critique of judgment and try to bring it to bear directly on rule following issues. Do you still think that the ideas you found in Kant are the solution to the rule following problem? Or has the view you've developed in your recent work on this shifted from that? No, it hasn't shifted, actually. I feel like that original idea that I had was on the right track. I think that the idea of the faculty of judgment in the third critique, which is, as I see it, the idea of a kind of normativity, the possibility of recognizing a kind of normativity that doesn't rest on reasons, is actually the way to make sense of rule following. So on this central thing, there's been, obviously there's been a lot of shifts in the details of how I think about it, but the central idea has remained remarkably constant. That, of course, might just be a reflection of my obstinacy, but that's how it is. Well, we're, we're trespassing already on the first question and talking about temperament and obstinacy. So I'm going to ask that explicitly now. So this is an Iris Murdoch-inspired question. She begins the podcast telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but she also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament 
influence your philosophy? And if so, how? Well, that's really interesting that you segued or that we segued from obstinacy into that, because my first reaction to the question, uh, and for a long time, this seemed to me like a reason why I couldn't possibly do this podcast, was that I felt like I could not answer this question because I have no idea what my temperament is. And I actually thought about this quite a bit. I thought, well, you know, maybe I should know what my temperament is. And how would I find out? And maybe I should ask people. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought that, well, I don't want to know what my temperament is. I kind of feel like if I were to come up with a description of my temperament, it would somehow be limiting. I'd start thinking things like, oh, well, I shouldn't do that because it doesn't fit my temperament. In a way, it it actually reminds me of a reaction that I have to people in moral philosophy and moral psychology who write about life projects or life plans. I think this is an idea that comes from Bernard Williams, who's a philosopher that I enormously admire. But I've always found the idea of having life projects or life plans deeply uncomfortable. I don't find it natural to think of my life as the unfolding of a plan. I think of it as happening in a much more haphazard and externally influenced way. And I think of the sort of temperament, you know, what's your temperament question in a similar kind of way. On the other hand, I did volunteer that I was obstinate. So that might, <laughs> that might in fact. Yeah, well, <laughs> this is great. You're putting me in a very awkward position now, because having said that you don't want to know your temperament, my, my task as interviewer is to try to figure out what it is and force you to reveal it. So thereby thereby doing what you've just asked me not to do. But I'm going to I'm going to plow ahead anyway and say, well, here's, here's a couple of things that came out of that that were really interesting to me. So one is, I suppose the resistance to life projects or plans might itself be a kind of associated with some kind of temperamental attitude towards life. That's one kind of thing that maybe we could follow up on. And the other is, I get the point that articulating one's temperament or one's character or one's psychology to oneself can create these sort of feedback loops where you're then led to imitate your own descriptions of yourself or other people's descriptions of you. On the other hand, there's also this thought that by knowing your temperament, you might be able to work around yourself, as it were, to be more free, have more autonomy. If you don't know about your temperament, you're sort of unconscious of how your life is being guided. So I guess I guess I have two questions there. One is whether you think a resistance to big plans is a kind of temperamental feature that might show up in your philosophy. And the other is whether you think the dangers of knowing your temperament sort of outweigh the potential benefits. Well, I'm okay with the idea of what I just said about resistance to life projects or life plans. I'm okay with thinking about that as an aspect of my temperament, I guess. Regarding the second question, I'm still drawing a blank because I'm somewhat skeptical of the whole idea of a temperament. I have different moods at different times. I feel pulled in certain directions sometimes, in other directions at other times. Sometimes I have a tendency to be deferential towards people in authority. That would include senior figures that I might be writing about. At other times, I feel like I have a tendency to be aggressive and to want to criticize these senior figures. I find it very hard to locate in all of that anything solid that I can label as, oh, this is my temperament. 
and this is what I need to be careful about. I just feel much more comfortable moving forward in a kind of moment-to-moment way and asking myself, well, what feels like the right kind of thing to do now? You, you kind of forced me in relation to my, my introduction and then the follow-up question that you asked. You sort of forced me to recognize that there has been this sort of like remarkable consistency over the past 35 years in my philosophical goals, at any rate. Uh, you know, I feel like in a way I have just been continually pursuing this one idea in a very dogged way. So maybe this is at odds with what I said about being resistant to a project, except it's not that I made this a project, that I decided in advance somehow that I would do it and I would direct my philosophical career in this direction. It's more that it just was something that kind of happened and that kept grabbing me. And I kept coming back to it and kept being interested in it and kept seeing different things that I read as falling into place around it. That's really interesting. There are so many questions I would like to ask about this. I mean, there's, on the one hand, there's a kind of affinity between the idea of yourself as being driven by moods more than temperament and the resistance to grand narrative. Then the other thing you're bringing up is the question of whether it's one thing to ask whether there's a kind of narrative structure in someone's life or a kind of constancy. Another to ask whether that is playing, that fact is playing a role in their own approach to it. Mm -hmm. The one thing I, I, I will ask is this, do you think this resistance to thinking in temperamental terms is something you do with yourself or do you do it with other people too? Are you reluctant to attribute consistent temperamental traits to other people and interpret them through that lens as well? Yes, there's a very definite yes to that too. Because when I was wrestling with this question, what's my temperament? I then started trying it out, for example, with my husband and daughter. You know, yeah. I don't want to do it with them either. I might be willing to do it with people that I don't know very well, but people that I think of as people that I'm close to, my friends, it's like, I don't want to reduce them yeah. somehow to a set of traits. That's very interesting. That idea seems very rich, that there's a risk in articulating temperament of picturing people in ways that diminish their autonomy, that sort of have them pegged in a way that could seem even dis disrespectful. Okay, we should move on to the next question, even though I think we have not in the least exhausted this one. But speaking of autonomy and options, I'm going to ask you a question about alternatives to philosophy. So. This is question two. If you weren't a philosopher, what do you think you would do? So I'm going to interpret this question as somewhat in the past tense, like sure. what would you have done? Because yeah. at this point, I'm pretty far on in my career. I'm not sure what I would do if I were to stop doing philosophy right now. But there's a fairly straightforward answer to that. Well, not necessarily what I would have done, but what I would have at least tried to do is to become a professional musician and probably a cellist. So I was a very serious cellist, especially, but I also played piano and I sang, but cello was my main thing. I was very serious about that in my early teens. And I decided around, actually, I remember exactly when I came to the decision. I can't remember whether I was 15 or 16, but I decided that it was a better bet for me to become some kind of an academic. And it was based on a fairly cold-blooded calculation, actually. I loved doing music, 
But I could tell that even though I was probably good enough to have some kind of career as a musician, the chances were very low that I would be able to have a very successful career. And I basically thought my chances were better as some kind of academic. I was very good in school. I didn't yet know that it would be philosophy that I would go into. Well, I do think being a musician, especially trying to be a soloist, is enormously difficult. Did you carry on playing or was it the kind of thing where once you had decided you weren't going to pursue a career in it, it was frustrating to do it as an amateur? No, I did carry on playing. And to the question about a soloist, actually, it was always chamber music that I wanted to do. Ah, right. So as a pianist, I did a tremendous amount of accompanying. Uh, my sister was a professional singer. I mean, so she was she was studying at the time. But from an early age, I used to accompany her. And so I got a lot of experience accompanying singers. I worked as an accompanist for a bunch of singing teachers, actually. So, I mean, I'm emphasizing this because one of the things that I loved so much about music was the very social aspect of it or the very community aspect of it, doing something together with other people, which you do very little of. In philosophy, although sometimes I try to think of philosophical discussion in a similar spirit, like you know, well, we're getting together and we're we're, we're doing some improvisation together. Um, I've also at various times I've done jazz, so I know a bit about jazz improvisation. But sorry, going back to your question, whether I've continued, yes, but in my thirties I injured my hand in a way that made it impossible subsequently to play the cello. And for a long time, I couldn't play the piano either. But the piano playing has come back, and I've been doing a lot of that. And I play with other people, with singers, but also with other musicians, any chance I get. What was that like when you were in the period of being unable to play? Well, it was incredibly frustrating. But then what I did was I started to take singing lessons because uh -huh. that was something that I could still do. And I actually got quite good. My sister was a professional singer and I was nowhere near in her league, but I found out that I had a pretty decent voice. And so I was getting quite ambitious. And then uh, I've just had a career that's just been like filled with one injury after another. I had my daughter and I had a C-section and something happened with my abdominal whatever. But then I had to stop singing. But around the time, and that was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. But around the time that I had to stop singing, I was getting a bit of the use of my hand back and I was able to play the piano a bit. And then, because I couldn't play the, 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 the really technically difficult classical stuff that I had been playing, I started to study jazz because there's much more freedom in jazz. It's not like, you know, there are these notes here and you've absolutely got to get them right. There's a lot more flexibility in terms of being able to manage difficult passages. It's basically up to you how complicated the stuff is that you play. Well, it seems, if nothing else, your teenage assessment of the risks <laughs> comparison between music and philosophy turns out to have been vindicated, that music was a precarious path to have pursued and philosophy was a, was a safer bet. Well, that certainly was right. But I went through a period in my, I think this was in my late 40s, and it was after I'd had all these injuries where 
I went through, I know you, you've thought a lot about midlife crises. <laughs> I went through a kind of midlife crisis where I felt convinced that I had made the wrong decision yeah. to go into philosophy rather than music, even though I knew perfectly well that it was extremely fortunate that I had decided to go into philosophy rather than music. But it still didn't take away from the feeling that I had somehow sold out in going into philosophy, that I really should have remained true to the thing that I was really passionate about. Fortunately, I'm over that now. I'm actually really enjoying philosophy these days. I would rather be playing music at any moment than doing philosophy, but I like it enough that I feel a lot of satisfaction now in having taken the path that I did take. But I want to ask another question that might be about music, might be about the rivalry between music and philosophy. I don't know. It's question three. Is there a work of art that you love in part for its philosophical depth? So when I read this question, what popped into my mind was a painting, which I actually don't know if it's philosophically deep, but I'll tell you what the painting is and you can tell me what you think. Sure. It's a painting by Raphael. It's in the Art Museum in Bologna. And it's a painting of Saint Cecilia, the patron saint of music, actually. And she's with four other saints. And she is standing with these saints and she's looking up towards heaven. And in heaven, there's a group of six angels who are singing. And she's the only one looking up, but it seems clear that all five saints are standing there listening. And Saint Cecilia is holding a small organ, as she often is actually in paintings of Saint Cecilia, but she's holding the organ upside down and some of the pipes have started to fall out. And at her feet and the feet of the other saints are a whole bunch of musical instruments that are all cracked and broken. Like they've been there for ages. There's a vial there and it's cracked and the strings are broken and there's a tambourine where the skin has a big gash in it. And I think that the point is, of course, to contrast the eternal, heavenly, timeless music and the temporal nature of the, I mean, that's the heavenly music up there and there's the temporal music down here. And I don't know why, I find this incredibly moving. You get the feeling that these people have just been standing there for centuries or for millennia, wrapped in their attention to the heavenly music, while in the meantime, all of this decay is happening to the musical instruments below, but they are completely unaware of it because they are so locked into this vision of the celestial realm. And as I now grope around to see if there's real philosophical depth in there, the only thing that I can think of is, or a thing that I think of is, that in a way, that painting of Raphael has actually been there for centuries, five centuries, actually, it was painted in 1518. It's been there for centuries. And generally, I mean, it hasn't been there, but you know, it's been somewhere for centuries, it's moved around a bit. And these generations of people have come and stood in front of it, and looked at it, with the same kind of rapt attention that the saints themselves are showing to the music. And now all those people, which include Goethe and Shelley and Stendhal, they're all people who love this painting, 
they're all dead. But yet the painting continues as something that has a kind of relative eternity or durability as this object of contemplation. It's an amazing painting. I actually looked it up while you were talking using oh, yeah. the wonders of modern technology. And it is. I encourage people to do that. I mean, it raises this challenge that religious art raises for people who are not religious. And maybe you are religious, but you didn't bring up the straightforward religious interpretation of it. Instead, there was a kind of challenge of figuring out what to do with the ways in which religious art can be incredibly moving if you're not simply reading it as an expression of awe at the divine music that puts into perspective all the mortal musical attempts of the group who are staring at heaven. Yeah, that's such an interesting question because, so no, I'm not religious. I am Jewish by heritage and I'm I go through periods of being, sometimes I'm a little bit practicing, sometimes I get a little bit into it. Most of the time, <laughs> I'm not into it. But I love painting. I mean, I especially love Italian Renaissance painting. And so I spend an awful lot of my time looking at paintings that are not just religious, but deeply expressive of a religion which is Christianity, which is actually completely alien to me. But I love these paintings. It's, it's a puzzle. I think you just have to sort of see through the religious inspiration of them to the kind of, I don't know, human ideals <laughs> that are somehow being portrayed there. I mean, did that happen with music too? Was the music that you loved and played, how much of that is also religious? Oh, <laughs> Tons of it. Actually, I've just now started looking into taking organ lessons because I love the organ and I've never had the opportunity to play it. And of course, organ music is so deeply associated with religion. So yes, a lot of the music that I love is connected with Christianity and it's the same kind of issue. I sometimes think that if anything were to lead me to be converted to Christianity, it would probably be listening to choral music by Arthur Brahms. I definitely think that the closest I get to experiences that seem like they're transcendent or there's some kind of incommunicable mystery that I'm in the presence of, it's listening to music, not necessarily <laughs> choral music, sometimes Bach, but sometimes like Beethoven, late quartets give me that sense that there's something being communicated, but it's transcendent. There's another world there. Yeah. I'm going to take us down a notch from the, the exalted realms of religion and transcendence to a question about, maybe about professional embarrassment, at any rate, about your <laughs> uh, life as a philosopher, which is question four. What's the most important work of philosophy you've never read? So I'm going to approach this question indirectly by telling you a true story, although I'll try to keep it short. I managed to get through my entire undergraduate program at Oxford and my graduate program at Harvard without ever taking a course in ancient philosophy or indeed ever reading any ancient philosophy in any course. It's a bit actually shocking that the requirements were structured in that way, but still I had my PhD and I had never read any ancient philosophy. And this was fine with me. I just wasn't interested. And then after I'd been teaching at Berkeley for maybe about seven years, I did get interested in Aristotle. I started going to Alan Coates' seminar. He was visiting at Stanford and I 
commuted to Stanford and went to his seminar on Aristotle's metaphysics and I got really interested in it. But I could never bring myself to read Plato. And then really kind of embarrassingly, at a certain point when I was really far along in my career, at least 20 years after I started teaching at Berkeley, I thought this won't do. I really should read Plato's Republic. This has got like completely embarrassing. I must read it now. And so I did read it and it was tremendously exciting. And I was congratulating myself the entire time that I was reading it. And I think I was telling all my friends about this as well. I was going on about, you can't imagine how wonderful it is to have the experience of reading Plato's Republic for the first time, but at a point where you really have enough philosophical background to appreciate it properly and to understand it and to realize how important it is. So this was an incredibly satisfying experience. But then... A few years ago, I went back to my parents' house where I had grown up, and I was going through some old books of mine, and I found a copy of Plato's Republic, which was full of my marginal notes. Whoa. (laughs) There was no denying it. I was so disappointed. It was clearly my handwriting. And then I was able to figure out from the date at the front of the book that I must have read this, I think, the summer after I graduated from Oxford, so after I had completed my undergraduate work. So this whole excitement at reading The Republic for the first time turned out to be completely bogus. I had read it. I'd just completely forgotten. Okay, so that's the that's the prelude. So, you know, I would have liked to be able to say something like, well, if you'd asked me that question 10 years ago, I could have said Plato's Republic. But now maybe... I should give you the answer. I feel like this is probably such an obvious answer, but I'm really curious to know. Principia Mathematica. Yeah. It's super important, but of course I haven't read it because almost nobody reads it. I think you're right that people don't read it, but I wonder in what sense it's important. I mean, it's a it was a monumental work at the time, but I my sense is that people think the project was ambitious but just didn't work. Well, I have been given to understand that it was immensely influential. So it was immensely influential on the development of logic. Yeah. But, you know, I think maybe I also picked Principia. It was kind of a bit of a cheat. I picked it because most other works I can think of, it would be too embarrassing to say, oh, well, I think it's really important, but I haven't read it. Because the obvious comeback is, well, why waste time? Why, yeah. <laughs> Why are we talking? Go and read it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. I figured that Principia was kind of a safe bet. Well, maybe we can move on from avoiding embarrassment there to question five, the final question inspired by Murdoch, Yeah. who wrote, it's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. What is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? Well, I have the same reaction to this question as I had to the first question. I feel like if I were able to pick something like my greatest fear, then that would have something like the effect of, it would be a bit like, you know, this is my temperament or this is my life plan. I would feel like maybe that whatever it was was something that I had to avoid. And I feel, in fact, of course, I have lots of fears like everybody, but the fears they change all the time. 
So I feel at this very moment, for example, my greatest fear is having to listen to this podcast. (laughs) In a way, I'm kind of, I'm not joking. This is at this moment. This is what I'm afraid of. I think maybe the solution for me is just going to have to be not to listen to it, which will not be the end of the world. Well, I think there's no better place to end than fear of this very podcast. So on that note, maybe I'll thank you for appearing on the podcast and say it was great to talk to you. Well, it was great to talk to you too, Kieran. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I I sort of enjoyed it. Hannah Ginsborg is Professor of Philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley. She's the author of The Normativity of Nature, Essays on Kant's Critique of Judgment. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Mm -hmm.